Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Life Lessons with me, Simon Mundy. So this is an impromptu special episode to mark Roger Federer's retirement from tennis. He's due to play his last match as a professional at the Labour Cup in London, after which he'll sail off into the retirement sunset. Now, as many of you already know, I'm a huge tennis nerd at heart. I've been covering the Wimbledon Championships as a broadcaster since 2007, first for Radio Wimbledon, then Radio One, and since 2018 for BBC Television as their roving reporter. Before that, years ago, I worked at Wimbledon when I was a student doing odd jobs like taking out the rubbish, washing dishes, and serving behind the barn. And it was when I was doing those kind of jobs that I was fortunate enough to be courtside when Roger Federer announced himself by beating Pete Sampras in the fourth round in 2001. And since then, I've been fortunate enough to watch Roger at close quarters on numerous occasions. I've watched him lift the trophy many, many times. And I can honestly say there'll never be another player like Roger Federer. That ability to combine balletic beauty with explosive power often made watching him a transcendent experience. And there's actually a a famous article that was written to that effect called Roger Federer as Religious Experience. I've also been lucky enough to interview Roger on numerous occasions and he was always humble and charming. And in fact, little claim to fame, not showing off, I conducted the last ever sit-down interview that Roger did at the Wimbledon Championships. That was after he won his fourth round match in 2021, which was his final singles victory at the Championships. He was on fine form. We reflected on his time at the championships, what he'd achieved, how much he'd surpassed his own expectations. And the interview got off to quite an amusing start insofar as we were interrupted by the grounds announcer just as we were getting going. Have a listen to this. 
Roger, you're still undefeated in fourth round matches here at Wimbledon. You're three to. What a way we are ready. Thank you for letting us know. We did enjoy our day. Yeah, we did. I have to leave. She told me to leave. Anyway, Roger was a delight that day, which was typical of the man. When he announced his retirement, uh, he spoke about his gratitude about being gifted with his tennis talent, which I really think speaks volumes because he was in awe of the talent that he had and he recognised that it was a gift. There wasn't the sort of egoic ownership that takes place with so many high achievers across all sorts of fields, including sport, business and politics. So to mark Roger Federer's retirement, I wanted to look at some of the lessons that Normal people, us normal folk, can take from Roger's life and career by speaking to Christopher Clary, who is the preeminent tennis journalist in the world, I would say. And he is the author of the fantastic book called The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. So this is an edited version of a previous conversation I had with Christopher, and I hope you enjoy listening. And I also hope you get the chance to watch Roger one last time when he steps on court in London tomorrow. I know I will be. I hope you enjoy this chat. Yeah, he has an ability to, and even rival agents, people who don't represent him will say this, so you know it's got to be true, because the last thing they want to do is compliment Roger, I suppose. But they'll talk about his ability to sort of make you feel like you're the only person who matters at that moment, and maybe even the only person in the room. He's all focused on you. I mean, tennis players tend to have pretty good focus in general. You need to succeed in the sport with that. It's important. But he's exceptional at it. And I think there's an element of nature there and there's an element of nurture there for sure in that. But I've seen it again and again. I've seen him walk into rooms with the media or places that I've been with him on interviews or places like that. And he's able to really just get the eye contact, give that person his full energy and empathy, if you will, which is one of his you know, real signature traits and give that person a feeling like this is really making his day, yeah. <laughs> even though you're probably yeah, yeah. not. But he gives you that feeling, which is, I think, really remarkable. The thing I think with Roger, in terms of interviews, the kid in me will be excited when he comes up. But then when he's sat in front of me, he's as normal as you like, actually. And I forget that he is Roger Federer. And I don't want to put anyone on a pedestal, actually, to be honest with you, anyway, because people just are people. He is human, just like you and I. And any champion who loses sight of that, it can be a bit sad and a bit tragic. And it's only when he always stand up on the balcony and there'll be a 200 people gathered below and will start cheering and clapping that you suddenly snap back into reality and remember it's Roger mm-hmm. Federer. Mm-hmm. You know how I define it? I'd say big athletes in general, and I've done a lot of different sports, they're kind of bringing themselves to you. You are getting them. But with Roger, you get the sense that maybe that's how it begins, but then quickly it becomes about the exchange and it feels uh, interactive in a way that a lot of other interviews with superstar athletes do not. And he really seems like, because of his curiosity and that empathy, I think he's able to uh, subvert a bit of his own ego. And he likes to be in that position where he's, you know, the alpha male. I'm sure he does. But yeah. in those contexts of an interview, he's able to make it into a conversation in a way that very few superstar athletes are able to do. Let's dive into some of the lessons. And I've already actually touched on one, remembering that whatever you achieve, whatever your status, and we live in a world of status, you are no better or worse than anyone else. 
he does retain that. And something uh, that you talk about was when he was at Nike HQ and he just left mm. and all of a sudden was like, ah, I got to go back. So do you want to pick this story up? Yeah, there's a director of tennis uh, in the U.S., Mike Nakajima, who told me that for the book. It's, it's a great story. And I guess there was a Roger Federer day. You know, Roger was front and center at Nike. This was yeah, probably 2010, 11 in that range there. And so he was very much still on top of the game in a lot of ways. So he came in there and basically they were running around doing different things at Nike. It's a campus. You have buildings all over the place. And he was... Uh, walking with Nakajima someplace after a meeting and out of this building or across the grounds. And he goes up, oh, I got to go back. And Mike thought, well, what'd you do? Forget your cell phone or something like that. He goes, no, I forgot to say thank you to these guys that helped us with this uh, shoot demonstration. And Mike's sort of went, what? <laughs> so they went running back to the building, went down back through security and the mag and bag and all that. And he went back and said, thank you to these people. And then, then left. And Mike said, who does that? Who among, among my, my other clients, some of whom I like quite a lot, would do that? And he said, nobody. And then, you know, later in the day, he was playing around with, you know, giving out the towels at the Nike gym and serving coffee on his little cart to all the employees saying, hi, I'm Rogers. They didn't know who he was. And there's an element <laughs> of theater to that part. But it's also indicative of the guy that he would embrace that situation and that role and enjoy that. And I think he's great when he knows that he's being venerated and adored and, and appreciated, which probably happens to him quite a lot. And then he's very comfortable playing that role of deflating it all. It's been a nice role for him to be in. I'm not sure how, how he was earlier in his career when he was much more in the balance about where his legacy and everything else and his status was. But from what I've seen, you know, I've covered him so closely from 2003 or so. It's just been a, really a lot of those little moments where he's – and you hear it from the players on the rise too. They'll be walking down yeah. the hallway and suddenly Roger was like, hey, good luck today. And they look around going, who are you talking to? Are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> and I've heard too many of those stories for them not to be indicative of something kind of cool. We do work in an industry where there are some egos knocking around. But I do think that is the remembering that you are, you know, whatever you've achieved. Okay, that's something to be proud of, but it, it doesn't change who you are, really. And as a lesson, I think this is something to keep in mind. Yes, enjoy the fruits of your labor, as they might say, but never believe that that makes you better than anyone else. Would you go along with that? It's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. I mean, that's that's a cliche, but I think Roger has, you know, taken it to heart a lot of times and he, he says it a lot. So he must uh, think about it a lot. And I feel that is important. And I think it's also how you treat that whole range of people in your workplace or in your people you come across, whether you're on a hiking trail in Switzerland and you kind of go by and you greet somebody as you go by and they know who you are and you know that they know who you are and that's okay. And you give them that little moment or you're, you know, the, you're in the locker room and guys will just toss their towels and their equipment on the ground and leave it to the winds and the attendants to take care of. And Roger never does that. So there's a certain respect. And that obviously comes from the way you're raised. That's got to be an acquired behavior. Yeah. And that's the parents yeah. saying, no, you're going to do it this way. That's his coaches when he ripped the screen in uh, Bien with his um, racket toss when he had this bad temper issues. It's like, you're going to get up tomorrow at 6 a.m. and you're going to do it for a week, even though you usually get up at 11 a.m. and we know you're not a morning person and you're going to clean the toilets for a week. Yeah. It seems like those moments when Roger could have maybe turned into a prima donna, I mean, they're all entitled to some degree. It's an amazing amount of entitlement that goes on because you're being catered to. And when you're a prodigy and you know global sport, you're going to be catered to. So it's a matter of how you understand that catering and how you process it. And I think that enough key moments in Roger's life with the character he already had, which was probably a good character, he got 
the lesson given to him at the right time. And I think Rafa is very similar. You know, Nadal, yeah. to be fair, is, has a very similar approach to this. And it's become yeah. almost normal in this era, but really <laughs> it's not yeah. normal compared to nice. what preceded them and probably what will succeed them. I don't think these guys are going to necessarily change this this culture that predominates you know, forever by their great behavior. No. I've been lucky enough actually to had some interesting encounters with uh, Robert and Lynette. I've covered Wimbledon. Just a quick backstory, actually. I used to go there as a kid because I lived not far from there. I worked there taking out the trash. Then I washed glasses and then I served behind a bar. But I've covered Wimbledon since 2007. But there was one year I walked from Wimbledon Station to the championships and you walk over the hill. And every morning, Robert was walking the other way as I was walking this way. And I mean, he must have dreaded it after about the seventh day. But, <laughs> because I would always stop and have a chat. And he has that openness and sort of gentle warmth, I would say. And then Lynette's got the sparkle, doesn't mm, she? She's, mm. she's really got the charisma. So you can see where Roger's got a bit of both from both of them. Yeah, my memory of, of Robert, the strongest one, it was in Argentina, actually. Where the book opens is this opening scene of um, being in the car with Roger after midnight driving through the streets of Buenos Aires, going from the exhibition where he plays Del Potro. And it's like this rock star moment, which to me seemed like it must be his routine, but he was saying it wasn't. And he was like a kid up against the glass, checking it all out. And just seemed wide-eyed with wonder at this South American adventurer, which is, you know, he's already in his early 30s. It's quite something. And so I was struck by that. And so we ended up going back to the hotel. And I don't get to this part in the book, but he gets in. And then he and his agent, Tony Gatsik, come back and say, why don't you come in? So I go in and Robert's there with him. So they're all in the lobby of this hotel. It's two in the morning or one thirty in the morning at this point. Robert Federer is just talking about travel, how much he's just loving being down in South America, how cool it is to be following his son. And there's this sort of boyish enthusiasm yeah. for the road and for mm -hmm. all that experience and very spontaneous and very unguarded and very cool. And then you yeah. realize, okay, so why is Roger still got that joie de vivre and love of the, yeah. the road and that wanderlust? You know, it comes right from there. And you're right, his mom has got that great energy and charisma and sort of quick-witted, uh, yeah, spark yeah. likes to challenge you in the conversation. Very fun. Yeah. So, he's, yeah, you know, yeah. he grew up in a lively household. He left it early. But think about it. Roger genetically would not exist if it weren't for that wanderlust because probably was yeah, in Switzerland yeah. growing up, you know, chemical engineer by training. He could have hung close to home, gone to Italy, <laughs> kept it a little bit less jet-laggy or a little less distance. He goes to South Africa. And he thought about going to Australia. And he meets Lynette. And the course of Federer family history and tennis <laughs> history has changed. Yeah, absolutely. Quick lesson then, I think, in terms of parenting. So in this country, you often hear about tennis being such a middle-class sport. And that is why perhaps they don't have the same killer instinct as they do, let's say, from Eastern Europe or other places like South America. Roger came from a comfortable background. But the way he was treated by Lynette, and Robert was, this is down to you. You know, we're not going to pressure you. We will support you, but it needs to come from you. That attitude of parenting, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think that's right. And I think you look at a lot of champions, they do need to sort of expatriate themselves from their families a lot of times because they have to. Look at Sharapova, who obviously went with her father at a young age, but left her mother behind and ridiculously yeah. young age. Look at Murat Safin, who I talk about in the book, great Russian player, had to leave home in Russia and his family by himself, basically in his very early teens. Look at Novak Djokovic, similar thing. In Roger's case, no way was it imposed. It was just seemed like it was the right path for him. And that really was a pivotal maturation moment where he had kind of his off to the academy moment that a lot of other 
prodigies have had in tennis and has made them stronger probably. But it was, you're right. None of it was imposed. He decided to do it and his parents made sure he knew that whatever he did, he had to take ownership of it. And there's a lesson in all that for us too, I think, in the sense that whatever you're going to do, you it better come from inside of you. I've already mentioned that treating everyone equally and remembering that. Roger had this too in terms of Stan Wawrinka, who we forget because he's a three-time Grand Slam champion. I think of him very much in that generation. But actually, he looked at Roger as his big brother, didn't he, when he was starting out. And I know that Stan's very grateful for the support that Roger gave him in terms of scouting opponents, sharing a trainer with him, etc. That helping others out, that's obviously a value of yours as well. Well, I think it's the pay it forward thing you talked about before in that sense that Roger, when he came up in Switzerland, you know, Marc Rosset, the 1992 Olympic champion, was a top 10 player then. Big presence, big personality. Rosset also worked with Pierre Paganini, the fitness trainer, before Roger did. And so Mark invited Roger to come join him for training. Mark invited Roger to come down to uh, the Davis Cup before Roger was on the team. And I think he was steeped in that Swiss Davis Cup culture and team culture of the older guys who already were established helping him out. So when it came time, when Stan came along, and clearly a promising junior, he won the French Open junior title. Roger thought it was, I think, natural to help him out. But he went kind of above and beyond, I mean, to be able to say, hey, you're coming up. You can use Pierre too. And obviously he had to give the green light to that and share that. Stan was not a threat to him at that point, Um, (laughs) but that's still a pretty big thing to do. Not a selfish move at all. That also is something, if you're going to be part of the ecosystem, help the ecosystem thrive and have loyalty to your coworkers. And he's done a lot of that. There's a lovely quote that you have in the book from Stan Vavrinka talking about what he learned from Roger, a universal truism to keep in mind, the importance of living in the moment. And Stan said, even when Roger has to do something he enjoys less, he does it to the max. So, for example, obviously being out on center court, winning a semifinal, those are the easy bits to enjoy. But the interviews late at night, the travel, etc., we have a propensity, don't we, to want to cling to the good moment, the equivalent of the semifinal wins at Wimbledon, and push away the bad moments and rush to the next moment. But Roger has this ability, it seems, and this is what Stan was alluding to, to treat all moments somewhat equally. You get this mastered and life becomes a lot easier. Yeah, that's a great point, Simon. I think I have to tell you, that's probably the one thing out of all this process of, obviously, I've been covering him for so long on an incremental basis, but to go and really have a long, hopefully thoughtful look at him over this long period of time of writing the book of about a year of the process and all those other interviews, that's what ultimately I think came to the surface the most was whatever you're doing in your life. And obviously there are lots of things we don't like to do, you know, from uh, the daily chores to doing our taxes to whatever it might be, but bring a certain amount of intentionality to that. And also you got to do it. I mean, you got to do the news conference. If you're Roger, you got to hop on the, uh, the flight and get the jet lag. You got to go and meet the sponsors who are helping to bring your bottom line up to where it is. Those are all things you got to do. And a lot of, a lot of tennis stars, drag their sneakers over that stuff. So Roger had that advantage. I think he used this expression. Yeah, I'm, I'm out there. I'm happy to be, do all the press, all the stuff, all the meeting, all the greeting. But then I need my time back away from that to recharge. And I think that's been the key. He's not probably intentional all the time. He may not be out there, you know, shoveling snow off his driveway in Switzerland with intentionality. I don't know if he is. But when he's <laughs> in those moments where he's doing his job professionally, or he's in a situation where he knows this is coming, he's going to do it. 
then I think he excels at that. And that has been a real key to his longevity and his popularity because you're not getting a lot of surly moments. You're not getting a lot of moments where he sort of brings it halfway. He's pretty much all in and he's got a lot of experience in these areas now, but I'm always struck by what he talks about with the younger generation of players too. He doesn't tell you about the advice that he gives very often, but he did talk about this once with me, which was interesting. He basically talked about, it's really important for me. And I always tell all the younger players when they ask my advice, take care of your own stuff, understand your own stuff. And what does that mean? That means your finances. That means your team. That means the logistics of what you're doing. You can't do it all yourself, but you better understand how it works and you better dig into the details. This is a guy who went without an agent for a couple of years. You know, just when he first burst to prominence was number one in the world. I mean, nobody does that. Yeah. People will go without a coach. He did that too, but they won't go without an agent to run the business. So he had his, his mom and dad and, and his girlfriend at the time, America involved in all those things. So I think there was a downside to that. They didn't get the money they probably would have gotten otherwise. For sure they didn't. And it was definitely a drain, but it set him up for understanding this whole range of things in the sport and in his profession that other players just couldn't be bothered with. And I think in knowing all the little details and the nooks and crannies of it and embracing that aspect of it, I think it's helped him to find the whole thing more enjoyable for longer. Well, there's a few points that I want to grab out of what you just said, Chris. You mentioned tax returns, and I think the content of any moment changes, right? And obviously, tax returns is not as fun as playing tennis, but Mm. a moment is a moment. And if we're wishing away those moments, we are wishing away life, essentially. And, And Roger seems to have that equilibrium, whatever the moment contains. That was one thing. That's a very beautifully expressed thought, by the way. And I'm not just being nice. I like that a lot. It's a good way to put it, yeah. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So for anyone listening, not just young tennis players, not just the next gen, for anyone listening, what advice would you extract from that for anyone in terms of taking care of your own business? 
Well, I can also maybe relate to something you already talked about in this conversation, and that was your own experience at Wimbledon. You know, why do you feel so connected to Wimbledon? Well, it's clear because it's a great tournament, but because you started out working the bar and taking out the trash and you've seen it from all angles, right? I mean, obviously it's a rarefied world, Wimbledon. So taking out the trash is a more pleasurable experience at Wimbledon yeah. than it would be. I'm not be. sure about that. On the street, I'm not I don't sure know. About that. You get that view, you know, across the, yeah, yeah. across the courts, Henman Hill and all that. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I guess your takeaway from that is know your ecosystem, understand it. Don't try to take shortcuts or, or try to just hop in at the highest level and think that's great. It might feel great, but I think you have more appreciation for the whole thing that you're experiencing and it'll keep your interest longer if you understand all the different rungs on the ladder. Better yet, have experienced a few of those rungs on the ladder and also really understand what that person you know, on the other side of that your office or wherever it is, is experiencing because you've been through it. You can relate to it. And I think Roger, when he looks around a tennis tournament, I mean, he was a ball boy. Pictures of him posing with Boris Becker and Wayne Ferreira and those people. So he saw the sport from the beginning that way. And he definitely, when he was running his own show, got a good look at parts of uh, the portfolio that most players never bother with. And I think that connects you. And I, I would say in my case, I'm very grateful as a sports writer that I started out covering, you know, the lowest rung on the ladder was covering high school sports where I started out in the U.S. I didn't hop mm. in and get to go cover Wimbledon right away or skip a step. I went, covered the high schools, went back to the same high schools that I played in in San Diego as a kid, went back and covered those athletes, interviewed them, you know, heard their parents rage when I screwed up, which I sometimes did, and got it very close to the source. And then use that as a base to build on. And I covered college sports after that. Then I went and covered professional sports, the NFL. Then I moved on to global sports, climbed up that way. And I'm really appreciative of that because I, I think I got a, a chance to see the business from many different sides. And I think that was uh, helpful to me. And I would say the same thing to anybody listening to this. That take a page from Federer that way and and try to see your whole your whole ecosystem. And don't expect anyone to do everything for you. That whole attitude of don't expect anyone to do the little things. In his case, the little things are still booking hotels and there's still big stuff, but that attitude of don't expect anyone else to do it for you. And then you touched on him in terms of enjoying the attention when he wants it, but then needing to step back. The clenched fist metaphor, enjoy the limelight, but then know when it's time or when you need to step back and recharge. And I think the six months he had off in 2016, for example, when he had that funny fall against Raonic, but he had six months off and I hate to land you in it, Chris, you thought he was done. But as we now know, actually, that withdrawing himself and doing what he needed to build himself up to recharge, actually, to sharpen his saw, so to speak, was the best thing that he could have done. And anyone can learn from that. Yeah, you're right. And I think to take full ownership of it, there was a fall. And we were all in the in press row there. And we all kind of gasped collectively about that because it was just unlike anything yeah. he'd ever done before. And he was at a stage there in his mid-30s where it just seemed like the right time for it to be ending based on tennis yeah. history. I didn't think he was done done, but I thought he was days of dominance were over. And we yeah. were wrong. But I think the clenched fist aspect of it is it's twofold. There's the really long range unclenching, which is that six-month break or the six weeks off the tour or really unwind, take the pressure off with these big breaks from the tour. And then there's the unclenching, which I think he was referring to in the interview is also on the daily basis. You're walking around, you're intense, you're thinking about your match. You got to unclench then too. 
And that's, yeah. you have to find a way to really change the chip. It's obviously been easier when you have four kids on the road with you. You go back and you're with your kids. And there's that great story yeah. from Paul Anacone when he lost to Joe Wolford Sanga. He goes back to the hotel or back to the house at Wimbledon. It's been five minutes since he lost. Anacone's going, what am I going to say to him? This is a horrible defeat. He was up two sets and he lost for the first time. They walk in the door. Roger's on the floor with his twins playing around within seconds of entering. Yeah. Chip yeah. has changed. So I think he's had some advantages there. But even before then, he was doing things to kind of help himself unclench. And one of the big things that he did, and it was unusual, I thought, for big-time tennis players, from my experience anyway at that time, this is the early 2000s, was he decided to kind of get out of the player hotels and get out in the cities that he visited and see them. And a lot of these players, you're kind of in a, in a bubble, but you're in a situation where you're really locked in, fully focused on the matches and the game and the whole thing. Roger always felt, or from an early age, it was important to break away. And I don't think it's just because someone told him that. I think it's because what he felt is what he needed. Get stale if he was around too long and get uptight. Because he's obviously, he's a very emotional person. You can see it after yeah. the matches now and those big moments of his career. But if you go back and look at the early videos and talk to people about him in that early phase, huge amounts of volcanic activity inside of him mm, and a huge yeah. amount of nervous energy as well. And maybe a pretty short attention span at the base with all that sort of manic energy that he has. So I think he's had to dominate all that and he's had to find out what works for him. And I think the idea of unclenching routinely and on a bigger scale has been very effective. And one we can all certainly keep in mind, I think, and quote comes to mind of Rogers that you put in your book, I am laid back and can let go quickly. And that story post that defeat to Songa illustrates that. And something I've noticed speaking to athletes who have had children in particular is they realize actually that they can let go quicker than perhaps they had thought. Uh, Helen Glover, who's a great British Olympian, and she used to beat herself up if she had had a bad practice for a day or two. And then she had kids and she realized, actually, I can drop that whenever I want. And I think this is something to understand that the degree to which we hold on to, let's say, grievances or disappointments or whatever, that letting go is a choice. And Roger is an example of the quicker you can let go, the better it is for you. The other thing I'd say too, Simon, is interesting about this is um, I think all of us kind of get to that point in our lives a lot where we're just, ah, I'm done. I'm tired. I got to take a break. I just, I need it. Take a break, whatever it is on a daily basis or monthly or whatever it is. I noticed with him, maybe it's because of the nature of a tennis player's schedule, but I noticed with him, he plans for it. And I think I use the term in the book, planned spontaneity, which sounds sort of like an oxymoron, really. But I think that's what it is. I mean, he's he knows himself enough now. He knows the rhythm of his life. And he plans for the moments when he's going to be completely in the moment, <laughs> which is yeah. a strange concept. But I think it really works. I took that away from this process of researching this book was that. I know I'm going to need to be in the moment at some point. I, I, I like that. I want to be there. So let's plan for it. Let's find the time when that's going to be possible. And so it's not, not just that two-week vacation. It's sort of Throughout the timeline of your year and your life, you make sure that when those moments arise, you're ready for them. You're ready to meet the moment with the unclenched fists, with your eyes not straying and your phone not in front of you. I love that, planned spontaneity. And uh, Cal Newport, who's written two brilliant books, Deep Work and Digital Minimalism, essential reading, actually, both of his books. And he talks a lot about that, you know, plan your downtime just as much as you plan your work time and i think there's a lot to be said to that because like you say it can be all too easy to just hop on our phones 
And that isn't downtime. You may think it is, but actually, no, that you, you've still got your clenched fist. I want to talk about something about Roger is that he has actually suffered a lot of disappointing defeats, certainly from winning positions against his great rivals, than Novak, than Rafa. And, you know, when Roger is in full flow, he's out of his own way, I would describe it as. Those are the moments when he can even surprise himself. I remember talking about that when he beat Roddick in 2003 in the semifinals, and he said, ah, I never knew I could play that well. And so he was out of his own way. But there are certain matches where you could see he was very much in his own way. The most obvious one is 2019, two match points. And you could see Roger seemed to be overthinking it. Easier said than done to not do that. But he was in his own head and as a result was rushing. There was an element perhaps of paralysis by analysis, being a bit passive, a bit hasty. Whereas Novak, on the other hand, he's learned how to get out of his own way. And for him often... Attack is the best form of defense. So mm. just do you see what I'm getting at here in terms of getting out of your own way? And this is something actually I don't think Roger in some of the key moments has done that well. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think when he's in full flow, it's almost an out-of-body experience for him to some degree. I mean, it's so natural and how unstressed his face is as he's playing, how relaxed he looks yeah. and how yeah. unusual that is for a tennis player. She says she don't think she'll ever see that like of that again where somebody is that in his elements, dolphin in the water kind of thing. But I do feel like every great tennis player knows who truly troubles him. And obviously, you know, Roger knew that Nadal and Djokovic were those guys for him. And so I think that great out-of-body experience becomes much more in-body there. And it also becomes a situation where he presses, maybe even ever so slightly, but he still presses in places where he wouldn't normally press. And that little bit of contracted muscle or clouded mind in a sport where the margins are so thin and the time to really react is so little, that's just enough sometimes to turn these matches. And obviously he's won plenty too, but I mean, he's lost more than 20 times from match point up. And Mm. I don't think, and Rafa and Novak who have played fewer matches, but not that many fewer matches are definitely in single digits than that one. But maybe deep down that little bit of emotional fragility that he has, that he's had to conquer to be the player that he wanted to be. I can just slightly surface and create a little bit of doubt. We're talking fine lines here. Yeah. yeah the fine yeah. lines are what separate those guys ultimately at the end. I mean, Novak's a hell of a player. For me, the little thing that's made a difference, the real difference is that ability to get out of his own way at crucial moments, to not get lost in his thinking, to play as if it was any other moment. And also he uses the element of surprise very well. And he also maybe has understood himself much as Roger understands this, the clenched fist and unclenched fist, Novak understands he's got to play a little bit against type sometimes when he's up against the wall. But that is now what he's able to do, go outside himself and find a way to attack. It is about getting out of your own way, not getting held back by thoughts or fears and that ability to get around that. That to me is the most interesting aspect of Novak. Right, let's finish with the lovely anecdote. You spent a bit of time traveling with Roger on his private jet, got to see how the other half lives, shall we say and then made a quick change and ended up on a full American Airlines flight, sandwiched between two people, jostling for position on the, uh, with the elbows um, <laughs> and you know eating food off the tray and then got home. You had to walk three miles home at 2 a.m. because it was too late to get a taxi. And the contrast there between, okay, the seemingly charmed life of Roger 
with the private jet. And then the hassled and harried life of us normal folk who have to travel in cattle class, we say. But then you have this interesting line of, on the face of it, this walk home at 2am, yes, it's a chore, but this is actually as well something Roger can never experience. So I just thought this was interesting about, it can be very easy to think the grass is greener. Oh, I'd swap for Roger's life in an instant. And obviously he enjoys it, but actually it's not quite that simple, is it? Well, I, I, first of all, it's the other one percent, or the other one tenth of one percent, live not the other half for sure. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, that's a very good point. Here we are. Let's get that straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had never been in a private jet before. I probably won't be in another one in my life. I went to cover his business dealings. It was all very journalistic, but it was certainly a moment I'll never forget. And for him, it's kind of his routine. They do it because that's what he needs to do to you know, make his life simple and as friction free as possible, and to prolong his career. And it's there. So for me, coming off of that you can't help but feel a little heady after you go through that kind of experience and you're in that kind of proximity to this very prominent uh, source and athlete. And so I was already thinking it was quite amusing when I got on the plane. I usually really hate middle seats. I'm a little bit claustrophobic and I have middle seats are my worst nightmare, but I was, I was almost like, this almost feels appropriate. This is my <laughs> payback for what I've just yeah, yeah. experienced. I will be in this seat. And, um, and the other thing I, I think about it was, you know, Roger, you know, for a guy who uh, can do what he wants, basically, and has the money and, and means to do that, he's seldom alone, I think. He's almost mm. always with somebody, with his four kids and his wife and people around him. And he's a naturally gregarious kind of person. He's got his family when he's home. And so when I got back that night, realized I was going to be back at 2 a.m. It was past the time for the taxis in my little small town in New England. I had to walk back with my rolling suitcase on the side of the road. I was just cracking up thinking, oh, Here's the solitude he never gets to have, you know. And I'm not sure I would have traded that, but it was a sense of there is a price to pay, as we all know, for that level of stardom. Roger yeah. deflates a lot of it by his personality and the way he is, but it is a huge imposition, one that you willingly take on. And when you made a billion dollars, it's you know there's ways to compensate for that pretty well. But <laughs> yeah. but there is that that sense of your life never being normal again. And I'm not sure walking at 2 a.m. on the side of a New England road is normal. I literally was laughing out loud. So somebody thinking I'm probably insane if anybody had seen me. You know, this guy's chuckling to himself in the dark. But there, <laughs> yeah. I, there, yeah, well, there I was. Him up. Yeah, not yeah, even yeah. chuckling. I was laughing. I go, this is- yeah. A laughing maniac walking down the side of the street. Anyone drove past you. Yes, that would have been quite a, an arresting sight. And this is a country road, Simon. This is not a little <laughs> London street. This is a country yeah. road. So gravel on the yeah, sides. Yeah. Lock your doors. Keep driving. I think that's a lovely lesson to finish. It's very easy to do. Look over the fence, as it were, and, and the grass is always greener. It's that classic one. But um, that really got me chuckling, that that anecdote <laughs> you told in the book. I thought it was a really lovely addition. And I just want to finish, Chris, by just congratulating you. You know, like I said, I ate this book with a spoon, as they would say. It mm. went down very easily. No sugar required for this one. So, yes, it's called The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. Your timing is absolutely spot on. I really am grateful that I got to read it without having a fork out because I would have paid, I promise you, Chris. But um, congratulations (laughs) on it. And it's been a pleasure to dissect some of the lessons we can take from Roger and and our own lives for anyone listening. It's been a real pleasure. So thank you, Chris. Simon, me too. I enjoyed it. It's great to talk to another tennis nerd and uh, (laughs) in-depth about our feelings, emotions, and the sport that we followed for so long. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
Thank you very much for listening to this special episode of Life Lessons with me, Simon Mundy. Just reflecting on a few of the lessons that we can take from the glittering tennis career of Roger Federer, who is retiring from the sport. If you enjoyed this episode, please do go ahead and share it. And I'd be delighted to hear your thoughts and questions and suggestions. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, Monday on Monday. And my Twitter and Instagram handle is at Simon Monday, And I do try and reply to every single message I get. Anyway, that's it for now. I'll be back tomorrow with another bite-sized episode. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.